0: Father, we thank you for this day that you have given. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that our minds and hearts would be open this morning to truth from your word. And we ask you to Bless and protect everyone that is on this campground. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. (laughs) By the way, do you know the difference between an ignorant person and a stupid person? an ignorant person is a person who simply doesn't know something and in that sense we're all ignorant right because there are many things we don't know and one reason a lot of folks are not interested in studying or learning more is because they don't want to know they somehow sense that if i know the truth i have to do something about it and that gets us to the definition of a stupid person an ignorant person is somebody who doesn't know A stupid person is somebody who knows but doesn't do anything about it. For example, if you know that smoking is bad for your health and you're liable to get lung cancer and you don't do something about that knowledge, you're stupid. Isn't that right? When right down to it, stupid. That's what it is. Or addictive. Well, addiction is stupid, we should know it before we get into it. There's a lot of times people don't care. All right. While Martin Luther, by the way, the title of today's presentation is The Amazing Facts. while Luther kindled the fire of the Reformation on October 31, 1517, as I've already mentioned or alluded to, he was not alone. It had been smoldering for some time. As we mentioned, the times were rife with corruption in the church. Immorality among the priesthood was rampant as was superstition among the people. Christ was seen as the one who punishes guilty sinners not to save them. He was seen as too holy to be approached. And someone had to be found who could intercede with him. Why not Mary, his mother? But she too was considered too sacred. So another intercessor was needed. Why not Mary's mother, Anna? So people prayed to Anna, who interceded with Mary who interceded with her son, Jesus, who interceded with God the Father for sinners. It was incredible, wasn't it? It When you think about it. But that was the superstitious beliefs on which people were spiritually nourished. Why was Christ thought to be unapproachable, or why was Christ, I don't see him that way, but why did they see him that way? So holy, so so sacred, (coughs) the Son of God. This was superstitious, superstition. There was, because of all of that, there was a growing yearning for a more personal an inward religious experience by the way we get a little bit confused about this and but uh, there is an experiential side to the christian faith and i try to bring that out in my book the road i travel Now, the Reformation succeeded because it came at a time when thinkers throughout Europe began to sense that something was radically wrong with the church and that people were in need of personal spiritual awakening. We owe a lot to Martin Luther. As I mentioned, he's still one of my spiritual heroes. We owe, we owe a lot to him, especially his uncovering of the good news that were justified by grace through faith. As I was beginning to become involved in the process of learning about Seventh-day Adventism, I heard a lot of comments that Adventism represents legalism. And I heard something like that before I became involved in this process. You know that. You've heard that. They, simply because we keep the Seventh-day Sabbath, they say we're legalists. That we believe we're saved by our works. It's usually said by illegalists. Illegal but that's not true. When you look into the facts, you discover that Seventh-day Adventists lift up the cross very high you listen to the preaching on this camp meeting it's all cross-centered christ-centered or did you hear bradshaw last night that was true adventism it's the cardinal doctrine of the reformation Justification by faith. It's the basic doctrine of salvation in the Bible. To keep accusing us of being legalist is just a smokescreen. So people won't look into it. And that great central Bible truth was Luther's great passion. Thank God. Thank God that he used Luther to uncover that biblical truth that had been lost, buried under centuries of ecclesiastical tradition and dogma. And he believed that it was his mission to preserve that truth and to preach it. Now I want to put a little footnote in right here. Justification by grace alone is a basic and crucial biblical, doctrinal, theological issue. But it is not the whole of the Christian faith. It's meant the ultimate fruit of justification by grace through faith alone is meant to produce a faith experience that is in harmony with the truth of it. And though Luther was the one who kindled the fire of the Reformation, as I said, he wasn't the only reformer. He didn't discover or uncover all of the truth. Remember, the first day we met, I said the Reformation was a, more of a movement, a progression, rather than an event. There were, there were others. For example... William Tyndale in England, and John Wycliffe, both of whom were involved in translating the Bible into English, and uh, Dr. Victor Bigford, whose wife was a friend of my wife, who passed away last year. He did uh, a genealogical study of his background, family tree, and lo and behold, he discovered that he's related to William Tyndale. (laughs) Not only that, he he discovered that one of his relatives, a lady, worked for Queen Victoria in Buckingham Palace. Then there was John Huss in Bohemia who was burned at the stake for his beliefs, his faith, in 1415, hundred years before the Reformation. Savonarola in Italy who was executed In 1493, 98, there was Erasmus in Holland who published the New Testament in Greek and that was used by Luther when he translated the Bible into German. William Tyndale, by the way, was burned in England in 1536. Then there was John Calvin in Switzerland, Philip Melanchthon in Wittenberg, Ulrich Zwingli of Switzerland, with whom Luther debated and contended over the Lord's Supper at a meeting in Marburg in 1529. And it was a big debate over the meaning of a three-letter letter Latin word, est, E-S-T. In Matthew 26, verses 26 and 28, we have Jesus' words concerning the Lord's Supper when he said, this is my body. This is my blood. And in Latin, it's est, is. So Luther said Christ's body and blood are physically present. But Luther never explained how. And it turns out that his doctrine of the Lord's Supper was referred to as consubstantiation as opposed to the Catholic transubstantiation. The Catholic doctrine means that the bread and wine are actually physically changed into the real body and blood of Jesus. Luther's view was that Christ is present in, as he says, with and under the bread and wine. And that was debated with Zwingli at Marburg. But for Zwingli, the word est or is means signify. Now, while Luther uncovered an awful lot that had been buried under the, in, under the traditions and dogma of medieval Catholicism, he was only one man who lived one lifetime. The Reformation that began that day in 1517, and which was, as Ellen White says, to increase in brightness until the end, is still unfinished business, that's why we're here. That's precisely why the Advent movement emerged from Protestantism over 150 years ago, in order to increase that brightness. Why? I quoted this, I think, already, but it bears repeating. Because in she says in our times there is wide departure from Bible doctrine. That was how many? 150 years ago when she said that. Certainly relevant today. And she said, there is need of a return to the same unswerving adherence to the word of God that was manifested at the crisis of the Reformation. Great controversy, 204, 205. Now, I found a very perceptive analysis that was published in 2004 by a man by the name of John H. Kahlbearer, spelled K-A-E-L-B-E-R-E-R. K-A-E-L-B-E-R-E-R. E-R-E-R. Kahlbearer. The book he wrote was entitled The Not-So-Silent Merger. Merger. It's from pages 20 and 21. He says, quote, The churches that have stood for decades as the mainline denominations of America have drastically changed. Remember, this was in 2004, when he wrote this. Methodist, Episcopal, Congregational, and the United Church of Christ, along with some liberal denominations within the Presbyterian, Baptist, and Lutheran mix, as well as many others, no longer stand doctrinally where they stood just 50 years ago. Following the lead of liberal theologians who have demythologized the Bible, abandoning its authority, denying the miracles of the virgin birth and the resurrection, and trashing as uncongenial uncongenial any biblical doctrine, contrary to the modern day liberated lifestyle, these denominations have betrayed their divine calling, To be the true body of Jesus Christ, the Christian church which God brought into being at Pentecost. Their membership and finances are no longer where they were even 20 years ago. You remember I said the Lutheran church that I pastored in the 60s when I left it in... 1970 to go to Andrews had 600 members and now, today, they're lucky if they get 30, 35 to church on Sunday. When I was there we had two packed services every Sunday. And the finances have of course dwindled and they can't support a pastor anymore. have to share the pastor with another Lutheran church in a nearby town that's in the same condition. And then Colbert goes on and he says, Christian spirituality vanishes as well. And for those old timers who remain within these denominations, there are the very haunting questions, what is going on in my church? What has happened? What has happened? Unquote. He really nails it. It's no exaggeration to say that Luther changed the course of history. His life and witness was a manifestation of God's gracious intervention in human affairs. It demonstrates how God raises up both the message and the messengers that are needed at certain points in time. Now we have to carry on what he started and remain true to Sola Scriptura, underline that. And I say that because we are being tempted to follow them. And that's the devil's scheme. because he's always attacking the Word of God. Now, we find that emphasis of sola scriptura over and over in Luther's writings. He read and studied the Bible, and he discovered discrepancies between what the Bible said and what the Roman Church taught. And the other reformers did the same. That's why, for example, they came to the position that infant baptism was not a Bible teaching. And I practiced it for many years as a Lutheran minister, but I remember always having some questions. Some There was a little bit of revelation reservation Reservation in the back of my mind because I read my Bible and I couldn't find any examples of babies being baptized well Luther was part of that Roman church and with dismay he saw that human traditions or ideas had been invested with authority that belonged to the bible alone and he saw it finally as his responsibility and what a heavy burden that was to you know to begin to realize to help his church put things right reform For the sake of the truth and for the sake of the people, because they were being deceived. So, to uncover and expose truth from the Bible is to follow in the living stream of the Reformation. And that's still our mission. It's our calling. And it's called faithfulness. You see, faithfulness is a corollary of faith. True faith is expressed, lived in terms of faithfulness. We are called to be an uncompromising voice for Bible truth. Because there are those in our time who would deny and reverse history. Now, let me ask you, how true was Luther himself to sola scriptura? And in answering that question, I have to share with you my own story of discovering some amazing facts. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, calling attention to another reformer who could be called the forgotten reformer because he's hardly ever mentioned. His name was Andreas Karlstadt. He was a colleague of Luther on the faculty of the University of Wittenberg for a number of years. Well back in 1970, 71 at Andrews University, I I had come there as a Lutheran. I hadn't left the Lutheran church yet. I was not yet fully convinced. What I was interested in is discovering the facts, the truth. Well, I began to dig into Luther's writings again, driven by my own personal spiritual crisis. And when I did, I got a major shock. Now God had already gotten my attention when my wife became a Seventh-day Adventist. By the way, she's going to be here tomorrow. because I want to end this series by doing something special. Anyway, when she became an Adventist, metaphorically, it was like being hit over the head with a two-by-four. Without going into all kinds of details, and this whole initial business covered at least two and a half years, maybe three years. I often compare it to Moses and the burning bush. Why was that? And I used to ask that as I pondered that story even years ago. Why was that bush burning in the middle of the desert? Well, the simple obvious meaning of that is It was to get his attention, because it was an unusual phenomenon. Why did God want to get Moses' attention? Well, when you read the story, that becomes obvious too. God had something important to say to him and he had something for him to do and moses was oblivious and so god had to get his attention that's what he did to me not as dramatic perhaps but when my wife was convinced and became an adventist that took a lot of guts on her part It was like that burning Bush experience. Anyway, up until the t- that time when I had gone to Andrews, and by the way, did I say I was still a Lutheran when I went there? Because up, up until then, I had trusted Luther completely. If I had a question, I checked his works and, you know, his, Luther's written works. A tremendous set, if you buy the whole set of Luther's works, it will cost you about $700. So if I had a question about anything, I checked Luther. I had all of his commentaries in my library, and I implicitly trusted his brave and courageous assertion, given the circumstances, that his conscience was captive to the Word of God alone. I believe he meant it, and I still believe he meant it. There was more to the story than what I'm sharing with you now, but this was a major part of what made it necessary for me to leave the Lutheran church and become a Seventh-day Adventist. So, amazing fact number one. Luther was not unaware of the Sabbath. Even at the time of the Reformation, some Christians observed it. They were called Sabbatarian Anabaptists. And they appeared before 1527. And they formed congregations in places like Moravia, Bohemia, Silesia, Holland, France, Pardon? What date? What date? Before Before 1527. And it was in 1524 that Andreas Karlstadt, Luther's colleague at Wittenberg, actually wrote a tract on the Sabbath. And it upset Luther, and he wouldn't let uh, Karlstad publish it in Wittenberg. So Karlstad went to the city of Jena in Holland and had it published. And in that tract, he wrote that Saturday is the true Sabbath. And that there should be a radical rest from all labor on that day. And Luther, of course, was apprehensive uh, about Karlstadt's interest in the Sabbath, and he responded in a letter to to Philip Melanchthon. By the way, a lot of this material is in the library at Andrews. I... I was able to read that letter. He wrote to Melanchthon and he said, If Karlstedt writes more on the Sabbath, Sunday must give way, and the Sabbath, that is, Saturday, must be kept holy. Luther. So, when I read that, and I began to think about it, he actually admits to Melanchthon that Saturday, the seventh day, is the Sabbath. So, the relationship of those two very strong men had been deteriorating up until that time because of Karlstadt's involvement in some of the violence that had erupted in Wittenberg, uh, involving the smashing of images and so on in the church there. And besides, they had some disagreements on the Lord's Supper, Luther and Carlstadt. Another amazing fact, and this was just almost unbelievable, Luther actually joined with secular authority by persuading Elector Frederick of Saxony, the political authority, civil authority, to dismiss Karlstadt from the university faculty and eventually banish him from the province of Saxony, kick him out. Union of Church and State. And when I discovered that, I sat there and said, come on Luther. And Carlstedt went to live among the Sabbatarian Anabaptists in Holland. You know, and you begin to wonder, what about religious liberty, which was also a part of the Reformation? What about freedom of conscience? You know, I said, you know, I thought, Luther, I don't understand this. Here you said to the emperor and the papal representatives that your conscience is captive to the word of God. What about the freedom of conscience? Look at the way he's treating his colleague. You see, his respect, Luther's respect for the inspired text of the Bible was so profound in my study, Carol, this is the next amazing fact. In my study, Carol, in the seminary library at Andrews University, I spent hours there digging into all of this. Luther was a scholar of the biblical languages Hebrew and Greek, as well as the Latin of the Bible translation that was called the Vulgate. And his respect for the inspired text of the Bible was so profound that he dared not tamper with the Bible itself. So when he, when he translated it, the Bible, into the German vernacular. He was very careful to do it accurately. So when I went to check his German Old Testament, I was very pleased to discover the Sabbath commandment was translated accurately. Even even in spite of the fact that he followed the Catholic numbering and called the Sabbath commandment the third instead of the fourth, which it really is. Now listen to his German translation. Anybody here know German? A little? Anyway, I'll read it in German. Gedenke des Sabbatages das du ihn heiligest. Sechs <laughs> Tage Sollst du arbeiten und alle deine Werk tun? Aber am siebenten Tage ist der Sabbat des Herrn deines Gottes. Now that's an accurate translation of the Hebrew. Remember the Sabbath day, that you keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Now, we know that he began to work on the translation of the Old Testament right after his return to Wittenberg from the Wartburg Castle in 1522. So it is very highly probable that he was working on Exodus at the time that Carlstadt was writing about the Sabbath. And in 1529, Luther published his large catechism, which was a textbook for pastors who were preparing people for church membership. And I had turned to it In my copy of the Lutheran Confessions in the Book of Concord, this is the very volume. And it's here in his large catechism under the Ten Commandments on page 375. And my jaw dropped when I read under the third commandment, which is really the fourth. This is the English translation of the German. You shall sanctify the holy day. In German, it reads, du solst den Feiertag Heiligen. Now, can you imagine how I felt? I just read to you his translation, his German translation of the Sabbath commandment. And here I find in his large catechism, He completely changed it. And I wrote in the margin, I underlined what he says. He says, as far as outward observance is concerned, the commandment was given to the Jews alone. But Jesus said it was given for man, didn't he? That is to say, for all of mankind. My jaw dropped when I discovered the liberties he had taken with the biblical text regarding the Sabbath commandment. He did not follow the biblical text in his catechism, but the ecclesiastical tradition of Catholicism. You see, it's not a translation. It's an interpretation that is wrong. I was all alone there in my study, Carol, faced with this. The literal meaning of the commandment is altered. The truth is completely transformed and obscured. And that is deception. The Bible says that God hallowed the seventh day of the week. It says, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and by doing so made it holy. God himself made it holy. The commandment says that we keep it holy. How? By entering that rest in faith, Luther radically alters both of those aspects. And by his translation, Luther made the commandment command what it in fact does not command. And this glaring distortion is further exposed in his explanation of the Sabbath commandment in his catechism, he says the commandment does not concern Christians in a literal sense. And he argues for the observance of Sunday, not on the basis of biblical evidence, if you read it all, but on that of tradition, expediency, and good order. Those were the words he used. You see, because there are no biblical sources supporting the observance of the first day of the week, Luther could not use any. So there are no biblical references there. And so he resorted to a deceptive argument. He said, we keep Sunday for." Tradition, expediency, and good order. Now, what is the vital lesson here? Study the Bible, not catechisms. Another amazing fact. After his rejection of the commandments, literalism, Luther makes this astounding statement. It's in there. He says, since so much depends on God's word that no holy day is sanctified without it, that's right, isn't it? But listen, we must realize that God insists upon a strict observance of of this commandment and will punish all who despise his word and refuse to hear and learn it, especially at the times appointed. But he doesn't say this in reference to the actual commandment, but in reference to his distorted translation, you shall hallow a day of rest the day of rest and he says if you don't do it God's going to punish you now is that legalism or what I sat dumbfounded if you refuse to hear and learn it especially at the times appointed he says appointed by who That's what I asked. I may have even said it out loud. Appointed by who? God or man? God or church? God or you, Luther? Now, if he had said that with respect to the Bible Sabbath, it would be what? What? It would be consistent with biblical testimony. And the keeping of that day would constitute the obedience of faith. But because he said it with respect to Sunday, which is not meant by Exodus 20, verse 8, it is not consistent with sola scriptura. Luther made the commandment command what it doesn't command. And by so doing, he rejected what it does, in fact, command. And the clincher was the realization that Luther's altering of the commandment was contrary to sola scriptura. And to his own principle that the Bible is always to be interpreted literally unless the context indicates otherwise. The literal and obvious meaning of the Sabbath commandment is very clear. The context does not allow for any other interpretation. That's where we stand as Seventh-day Adventists. And one who reads it with a mind that is unburdened by human and ecclesiastical tradition or cultural demands. You know, we keep Sunday because everybody does. Every, every Christian does. We'll understand what God's will is and by faith will obey his will. That's called the obedience of faith. And that's precisely why so many people eventually find their way to the Seventh-day Adventist church and why that principle must be maintained by this church. So there I sat. I thought, what What should I do? Follow the Bible or Luther's mistranslation in his catechism. I could come to only one conclusion. The Bible is right. Luther was wrong. While he was right on many things for which we have to thank him, he was wrong on that. Another amazing fact, in July of 1519, Luther, Melanchthon and Karlstadt were invited to debate with the Catholic theologian John Eck uh, in the city of Leipzig. And the debate dealt with the question of authority for faith and life. The reformers argued for the authority of the Bible alone and Eck for the authority of the church. And in his 404 theses, Eck exposed the inconsistency of the reformers. He said that if they really held to the Bible alone, they could not hold to the first day of the week for which there is no biblical authority. That's what the Catholic theologian Eck said. And he told them, he said, if you continue to to hold to Sunday, it would be to recognize the primacy of the Roman Catholic Church. And in his book called The Handbook of Common Places, Eck wrote, wrote this. He said, the Sabbath is commanded many times by God. Neither in the Gospels nor in Paul is it definite that the Sabbath has ceased. That's Eck, the Catholic. Nevertheless, he says, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, has instituted the Lord's Day through the tradition of the Apostles without scripture and some of you have may have heard this already i don't know but i'm going to repeat it for the benefit of those of you who may not it's from the parish paper of saint catherine catholic church in olgonac michigan Was published May 21, 1995. It says, quote, perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The first century, way back. The Holy Day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday not from any directions noted in the scriptures but from the church's sense of its own power people who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become seventh day adventists and keep saturday holy have you ever heard that 1995 of course it's right if you if you study the Bible and you believe that Saturday is the Sabbath it's only logical for you to become a Seventh-day Adventist when I read that it just confirmed what I had to do here is the little horn power of Daniel 725 that will speak against the Most High and oppress His saints and try to change the times and the law. No matter what we do, let's remember this, will serve to sanctify Sunday or the Sabbath. What we do does not sanctify the seventh day. That would be legalism. God has already done that by his word of command. He alone can make holy. You and I can't make anything holy, only God makes holy. The commandment is to keep it holy by observing it, by entering into its rest by faith, not make it holy. And though his contribution to the Reformation was enormous, for which we can be grateful, Luther was nevertheless unfaithful to the written word of God with respect to the Sabbath. So can you imagine what started to happen in my thinking and to my trust in and respect for Luther when I was able to absorb these amazing facts? For a while I was a man without a church. I was a Lutheran, but not a Lutheran. I was not a Seventh-day Adventist, but I was a Seventh-day Adventist because I started observing the Seventh-day Sabbath. And by the way, when, I, when we went to Andrews University and I was still a Lutheran, I could have attended a real nice Lutheran church just down the street. It's a Missouri Synod church, but I didn't. I made a, a deliberate choice that I would attend Pioneer Memorial Church every Sabbath because I wanted to get the flavor of Adventism, not just from books and lectures, but from the way the people worshipped and behaved. And you understand what I'm saying? But gradually I knew what I had to do. And Luther helped me make the decision. I don't regret it because it's Bible truth. Once you see the truth, you have no other choice. If you see the truth and you don't do something about it, you're stupid. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I can say that with Luther. The issue is still the same today, Maybe, maybe even more so. There is only one safe response to issues of faith. Here I stand. I can't do anything else. God help me. Well, tomorrow I'm going to be talking about what Ellen White calls the grand principle and the final session that we share together. I hope I hope that you are being blessed by being here Amen. and that my story though Ellen White refers to what we do like that as the word of their testimony I hope that my story will serve to fortify your faith and firm it up. I really believe that the Seventh-day Adventist church right now needs a revival. There are a lot of issues that we're facing. And I'm going to refer to one of them tomorrow as an illustration of what I've been talking about all week. And we're going to be called by God to stand, to stand firm. So, we need a revival. And our country, the United States of America as well as other places, right now is desperately in need of a spiritual awakening. But that will never happen until the church is revived. And you know, folks like you begin to respond to what is called every member involvement. Because pastors aren't going to finish the work. I can't do it. I'm 88 years old. But you can, and your children and your grandchildren can. We have to light a fire under the lay people in our church right now. And I believe that the folks will respond when they see the issues and they see the critical nature of the need. I believe the folks will respond. I really do. Okay, that's enough for me today. I have a question. Yeah. What was Luther's response? Pardon? What was Luther's response in the debate with that? Oh, Luther stuck to his guns. You know, he he just ignored that. Which is (laughs) mystifying in itself. It seems interesting that he would stand up against the Catholic Church to the point of breaking away and yet not stand up on this. The tragedy of the Reformation was not only in that fact, but the fact that Protestants were persecuting other Protestants. There were Sabbath-keeping believers as a result of this kind of teaching of, from Karlstad and others that were put to death. Even in Finland, yeah, Finland was uh, under the control of Sweden for 600 years, and one of the Swedish kings, I think it was Gustavus Vasa, issued a decree for Finland, including Finland that Sabbath keepers would be either banished or put to death, drowned or burned at the stake. In England under the reign of uh, Queen Mary who followed in line after Henry VIII died, Catholics burned Protestants, and then the next queen, Elizabeth I, was a Protestant, and under her power, Protestants burned Catholics. And there were a lot of, a lot of Reformers, Protestants, who object to that, objected to that kind of behavior. You know, they said, this isn't Christ-like behavior. So you see, the Reformation was you know, not pure. I was led to believe by one speaker that among Luther's 95 Theses was a statement about the church's power to transfer solemnity from seventh day to the first day. Do I understand that right? I can't r- accurately answer that. It's, okay. it's been quite a while since I read those. Okay, I just wondered. Yeah. It, would be, it would be consistent that he should I say it, that he that to a point, because of the fact that he was trying to reform his mother church, that some points he took issue and some points he just let them go. Oh no, that's true. Uh, if you wanna if you wanna Google that you can. Yes. I don't do Google, but <laughs> I know that if you are able, you could Google the Reformation and you know, trace it down and read the 95 Theses. Yeah? I've read, I've read the 95 Theses and I don't remember that. No, I, don't yeah. I don't think that was in there. Okay. <coughs> it just seems so strange to me that Luther was willing to move away from the Catholic Church, willing to face death for all of these other things, but not, not on the Sabbath. Well, there were other things historically happening at the same time. And this is one thing that we need to really look into in a study of the Reformation. I didn't think I wanted to spend time on it, but at that very time, there was a strong Islamic resurgence. And the Turks were threatening Europe, representing the Muslim faith, same thing is happening today. And so a lot of the political figures were concerned about that and they wanted peace you know so that they could face this threat from the East and also uh, there were movements among the, the Jewish faith to take advantage of the the upheaval and promote Judaism. They were called Judaizers. And so you have these other things that are there that they were also dealing with and facing that contributed to, to this whole mix of confusion and different emphases and so on. Now I believe. I believe that the Seventh Day Adventist Church is the true ecumenical church because we are calling people from all faiths and all denominations to a unity based on Scripture, not based on compromise. See, in order to in order to contribute to the contemporary ecumenical movement. You have to compromise. Can I have a volunteer for prayer? Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for reading in our prayers. Help us to keep our eyes on you and your work so we can be thankful to you in the name of your coming. Jesus' name, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse,